and you're listening to Square One, a podcast where we interview entrepreneurs, investors, and executives at the cutting edge of business. And I'm your host, Ramin Shah. Today's guest is Brent Bishore, founder and CEO of AppVentures. In an age of speed, overstimulation, and FOMO, it's easy to get caught up in the latest technology trend. What's most interesting, though, is how little airtime we give to the massive sector of value creation that lives and breathes on the complete opposite side of the spectrum. Brent funds boring businesses. The kinds of businesses that aren't on magazine covers and you've probably never heard of, but are integral to the economy and print steady and material cash flow. We chatted at length about boring businesses, evaluating fads and trends, and some of Brent's biggest philosophical learnings from looking under the hood at over 12,000 companies. Brent, welcome, and thanks so much for joining us. I really appreciate you having me on. Thank you. Yeah, Brent, you know, I'm really excited to have you on the show today. I think, you know, your perspective on investing and just general approach to business is amongst one of the most original and, and clear in the industry today. And it's also filled with loads of empathy, which is really refreshing. Before we dive in, you know, tell us a little bit more about your background. You're based out of Columbia, Missouri, which is admittedly the first, but hopefully not last from the area on this show. And you did a bunch of things before starting Adventures. So tell us a little bit more about your journey and how you ended up starting Adventures. Yeah, it, it, it certainly is a, uh, a winding journey. And I think that's uh, it's maybe a, a key theme of my life is everything that, that looks like a straight path, a straight line from, from point A to point B is, has been uh, quite a winding journey up and down. Um, I, I was getting my law degree and my MBA here in, in Columbia at Mizzou, met my wife who was getting her PhD and um, dropped out of my law and MBA program to start a business. That business uh, didn't do great, but it led into starting another business that did better. And then uh, I would say I fell backwards into private equity when we uh, acquired a, a company kind of out of the blue, um, had no background in acquisitions, had never done one, never diligenced one, and uh, ended up uh, accidentally uh, buying a business and, and, and did well with that. So that kind of led down the path of this dual model, I guess you could call it for a while, which was we were starting some things and buying things and trying to figure out, uh, you know, how to make a way in the world. And, and I think that's probably the key is that, you know, at every given juncture, we've just taken the resources that we've had and, and try to parlay those into, uh, you know, sustainably more resources over time, not as quick as we possibly could, but sort of sustainably um, take it to the next level. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting because I think, you know, you've been at it for about a decade or so now, and there's, there's been a lot of evolution, right? I think about 18 months ago or so, you guys raised your first outside capital culminating in, you know, about a $50 million fund or so. And, you know, I think your organization's interesting for a lot of reasons, but most of which is your self-awareness on, you know, your personal truth and, and sticking to it. And as far as I can tell from the outside, you know, new capital uh, and the new kind of influx of, of LPs, et cetera, hasn't really changed your underlying value. So talk a little bit more about, you know, the philosophy on running the firm and you know, how it's really evolved over the last decade. Yeah, great question. So until um, uh, about a year ago, a little over a year ago, we had never taken outside capital. So I had taken that, uh, that original um, company and then parlayed into more uh, companies and then harvested cash flow over a period of time and just, you know, kept reinvesting it. I mean, one of the nice things that, uh, about Columbia, Missouri is low cost of living, low overhead, low burn. So we were able to, to take some resources and, and uh, um, build them up. And so when we took the, the 50 million, uh, which we took a year ago, December, it was really to scale what we'd already been doing. And, you know, we've, we intentionally designed the firm, uh, the fund to complement the firm and not the firm to execute the fund. I think that's a, a pretty important piece that most people miss in the process is, you know, the, the amount of capital and the type of capital you have should not determine the investment strategy. The investment strategy, you know, the opportunities and the people, if you want to break it down further than that, should be the thing that capital supports. So when we look at size of deal, type of deal, you know, the, the, the trend in, in uh, if you're successful in private equities, you always move up market. And what we've tried to do is stay where we think we can have a, a really nice risk return profile. And we're always looking at that um, asymmetric risk return as being the primary thing that determines you know, if we do a deal or not. So, you know, we obviously having more resources, we're able to look at uh, larger deals, but the larger deals are, are not just so we can deploy more capital, raise more money, deploy more capital, 
Uh, in fact, because of the incentive structure that we have set up in the fund, we have, we have no incentive to continue to deploy more capital and uh, all the incentive in the world to do good deals. So, um, yeah, we've tried to stay true to who we are. I mean, that's the only way we know how to do things um, and um, just continue to do more of what, uh, you know, what we were able to do in the past. And how was that fundraising process? Because I think I think there's a couple interesting nuggets here that, that I want to call out, one of which is, you know, obviously you're raising a fund from Columbia, Missouri, right? It's not a New York City. It's not a San Francisco. And so I imagine there's, you know, there there's their own hurdles that that come with that piece. The other piece, though, is, um, you know, you're you're a young guy. Right. And so there's also a, a piece that comes with that. And then there's another piece, which is, you know, your view on private equity and your view on a, a fund is, is very different from a classical, you know, three years and flip type model. Right. To optimize IRR in the short term. Um, you know, versus versus long term decision making and value creation. So talk a little bit more about that fundraising process. I'm sure it was a pretty interesting story. Yeah, it, to be honest, it was uh, way more difficult than I ever expected. And I think that's a, you know, a theme that I've noticed, at least in my life is everything I've never done uh, seems a heck of a lot easier on the surface uh, than than what it really is. Um, it, it took, um, gosh, you know, almost full time a year to really uh, to really get it done. And I got to be honest, we, we almost didn't even raise $10 million. Um, I think there's there's a tipping point around 10 and another tipping point around 30 that uh, that occurred and, and, you know, feel like we kind of uh, got through the eye of the needle a uh, couple times. And um, I, I think it was because, you know, one, we're, look, we're in Columbia, Missouri, we're not a when you say a known quantity on Wall Street, uh, we didn't have uh, the the right pedigree, right? You know, we didn't we didn't have an Ivy League network. We didn't have gone through a um, uh, you know another private equity career and fund and sort of a spin out, which is the traditional path. Um, so we we're doing this from scratch, um, and you know, yeah, I'm I'm 35 and I look about 22. And, um, you know, I, I think that, you know, when you mix all those factors together with a very unusual structure, um, it made a uh, it made for perceivably risky investment. And I think that's the thing that I learned a lot about is this idea of uh, career risk. So the only investors in the fund were people who were making the decision on behalf of their own money. So they, they didn't need to, to worry about how they looked to somebody because they were just, you know, doing it for themselves. So it removed this idea of career risk. Um, anybody who had career risk didn't invest. And I think that's a, you know, a really powerful lesson, which you know, I had uh, highly underappreciated up until that point was just how much uh, it matters how things look far more, in fact, and I would say in the beginning, way more than the actual underlying performance or the upside or risk reward dichotomy or, you know, whatever sort of um, big decision controlling factor decisions that you want to look at. It was purely, and I had one uh, LP tell me this, he said, you know, look, if you do great, it's not going to make a difference in my career. And if you do poorly, I could get fired. Like, that's it. You know? It's it's really interesting because I think I think there's a couple of threads there, and I, I want to get into some of those in, in in later parts of the conversation. But there's there's one thread there too, which is kind of this intrinsic piece around running a firm out of Columbia, Missouri, right? You know, I'm I'm a native from Atlanta. I've spent some of my formative years in in New York, Boston, San Francisco, and it, it's something I think about a lot, which is kind of the best the the advantage and the rel- that relative advantage and the relative disadvantage of being in Atlanta. I think there's some intrinsics uh, for Atlanta specifically, which make it a lot better than cost of living off the off the top of my head, but but harder in other respects. Um, how has that unfolded for you kind of through the fundraising process? You talked about a little bit, but really more so kind of in the operations of the fund. Sure. Well, I would say uh, we believe firmly that Columbia, Missouri is the best place in the world for us to build adventures or we wouldn't be here. Um, I think we we accidentally lucked into it. Um, and the relative advantages are certainly cost structure. I mean, um, it, I think the lowest cost of living in the country is about 25 minutes south of us. And uh, we combine an incredible cost of living with a, a fantastic, uh, really fantastic resource city. I mean, for the size we are, the, the region's about 300,000, a little over 300,000 in Columbia. Inside city limits is about 130. Um, we have amazing food and music and art, and it's a very uh, 
diversity because we're a university town. We've got 40,000 students in the area uh, between Mizzou and then three other schools. And it really is just, um, it, it's an incredible Goldilocks place to live where you get a lot of the advantages of living in a bigger city um, from a quality of life standpoint with an incredibly low cost of living. And so, um, you know, coming from a, uh, if you want to call it value investor mindset, I think that Columbia, Missouri offers us by far, both personally and professionally, the best value um, the, the, the strength of it is also in the talent. So we have a, a incredible access to young talent and we've been able to home grow a lot of the talent that we have on our team. The, the only big disadvantage I would say is in experienced talent. So in a bigger city, you're going to have, uh, deal attorneys and, uh, M and a people, uh, a lot of, uh, experience that churns between firms. And here we're the only game in town. Um, we are, um, you know, there, there is private equity, certainly in Kansas City and St. Louis. Those are each about an hour and a half away. But in terms of Columbia, if we want to, you know, bring in somebody senior to our staff, we're going to have to go and recruit from the outside. Um, the, the nice part about that is we just went through that process, a very long process, in fact, uh, 18 months to find our new CFO, uh, Tim Hansen. And, um, you know, he moved his family from Alexandria, Virginia here and is loving it. I think he's, uh, we joked, he's doing Missouri better than I am. Uh, um, just, just, you know, really um, fell in love with the city, fell in love with the, you know, the, the people and uh, wanted to move his family here uh, as opposed to uh, staying in a, in a bigger city. So, you know, uh, again, I, I think every challenge can be overcome, but, uh, you know, there's no free lunch and there's opportunity cost to everything. Yeah, I, I really like your framing of it, which is of, of the way you started even the answer to that question, which is you guys feel compelled that Columbia, Missouri is the best place to build adventures, right? Because I think a big part of what you're getting at is knowing who you are, what makes you happy. And then if you're if you put yourself in a certain position, understanding the specific game that you want to play. And and apart from location, you know, kind of from a <clears throat> excuse me, from a substantive industry perspective, I want to talk a little bit more about that game that you play, you know, in an age of technology and with the amount of fanfare around it, you've actually taken the hard stance of going after uh, what's called boring businesses. And I I want to read an excerpt from an article that you wrote on it because I find it super fascinating. We've had the opportunity to evaluate and invest in all types of companies, including some sexy businesses, ones with high growth, bragworthy products, or screw the rule of teams with an average age of 25. While the sexy factor is never why we choose to invest, it can certainly be exciting. But the other end of the spectrum also attracts us. It contains what we call boring businesses. Boring businesses don't banter about valuations or recent capital raises because they've already found product markets that are profitable and are growing sustainably. Talk a little bit more about this because I think especially in kind of the investment landscape today, it's a pretty counterintuitive um, and, and somewhat contrarian view. Yeah, I mean, I, I would say it, it, the, the view came out of experience. So, you know, early on in my career, I was attracted to what everyone else is attracted to. I was attracted to food and film and technology. And, and we certainly did our fair share of dabbling in those areas. And what I discovered was um, those things are magnets for really low returns for people that have money to burn for incredible competitive talent. And frankly, uh, I just didn't think that we were going to be a position both being in Columbia, Missouri and with our strengths and weaknesses to outcompete. And, you know, we wanted to be the best in the world at what we did. And we just didn't have a shot at being the best in the world at investing in technology or investing in the film business. Um, And so when I look at what we could be the best in the world at and what we really just loved was uh, steady, stable, faithful, steadfast companies. Um, and you know, we, we've seen behind the curtain at, at more than 10,000 companies. And what I can tell you on average is that the more boring, the more mundane, the more dirty, hard, uh, and we can talk about perceivably hard versus actually hard as being an interesting, uh, dichotomy there. But, you know, on average, uh, those are the companies that do the best for everyone. They treat their employees really well. They treat their customers really well. Um, and, and they build incredible value within the firm. And this is really Main Street America. I mean, if you look at, you know, in a region, you know, you're in Atlanta, if you looked at the largest uh, HVAC company in your region or roofing company, uh, and they don't always have to be in the trades or home office related. But I mean, there's an incredible diversity of ways to make money. 
Um, but oftentimes the ones that get all the attention are the ones that are um, headline grabbers. They're the ones that go from nothing to a $2 billion valuation seemingly overnight. You know, no roofing company is going to ever do that. But what I can tell you is a uh, roofing company is going to make, you know, six, seven, eight million dollars a year in free cash flow um, pretty consistently every year and grow with the economy and, and sort of have this natural tailwind to it. Um, and so over time, we just honed our taste for things that we believe are going to be around for a really long time. Um, you know, we, we like to have a thesis when we go into any investment, uh, how does that play out over a long period of time? How susceptible is it to disruption and just really make sure that there's nothing about that business. And this is always on a sliding scale, but there's nothing on that business that is going to, uh, unnaturally attract competition, uh, into it. And so, you know, you, you drive by a house that's, uh, getting built and you look at a guy, you know, hammering nails into a roof. And, you know, I don't think you probably say, gosh, I want to quit my job and, and go become a roofer. Right. Um, you know, whereas you, you see a movie and everyone wants to uh, be a movie producer or make a, make a film. And so I think that naturally over time just filters down uh, into, a, you know, a lot of these millions and millions of micro transactions that really build the core engine of the, of the economy and of these, you know, particular industries. Yeah, absolutely. No, it's it's really interesting because I think there's actually a good analysis on sectors over the past 20 years. And while technology produces uh, high returns in aggregate, you know, traditionally, quote unquote, boring sectors like consumer staples actually produces a higher return. Right. And and the volatility is actually a little bit lower. And it's interesting. I think one of the things you were alluding to, and, and I'd love to have you talk about it a little bit more, is kind of this idea of impressiveness at the bar. Right. So you talked about, you know, if you're thinking about a roofing company, et cetera not something that you particularly uh, that's particularly impressive at the bar, right? Talk about that kind of phenomenon and that phrasing a little bit more, because it, I think it's a, it's a very, there's a very nuanced, interesting point there um, and, a, and a good way to think about kind of careers and opportunity also. Yeah. I mean, I, I feel like this, this um, I, I joke about, you know, the, this being that how impressive do you want to be at a bar, but I think this signals a lot of things. So if you think about being in a bar and you're meeting new people, um, depending on your age and stage, you're maybe trying to uh, attract somebody uh, romantically and, or impress new people that you, that you meet. And, you know, I think a lot of people optimize for what I would call prestige games. So these are the games around how prestigious does it feel like I am and how prestigious have, have my previous accomplishments been. And what you're trying to really do is you're trying to draw a trajectory between your past and the future in hopes of attracting uh, other people around you romantically or not that buy into that vision and elevate you above everyone else. And so this drive, I think, is so strong that we oftentimes make major life decisions not based on the reality that we see, but oftentimes based on uh, how we think others will perceive it. And so when you look at uh, getting, you know, taking a job, you know, would you, uh, you know, would you rather go to a four year college, rack up a bunch of debt and become, you know, uh, some middle manager uh, at a company, which sounds very uh, stable and very uh, attractive, or even go do a startup, right? Which is, you know, <laughs> the, the VC industrial complex has done an incredible job of promoting as being a very sexy thing to do, um, especially, you know, in the coast, but, but I would say almost everywhere. And, and then you look probabilistically and say, okay, it's either that, right? So kind of the stable path, the VC path, or the, the startup path, and then you've got this other path, which is go to a trade school and become a plumber. Well, I can tell you that becoming, if you tell people in a bar that you're a plumber, they're probably not going to give you a, a lot of prestige points, right? Um, but I can tell you probabilistically that the plumber is probably going to make more money than, than anybody else, um, at least on average. So, you know, it, it really depends on what you're trying to optimize for. And I'm not saying optimize only for money, of course, but I'm just saying is using that as a uh, measuring stick for, for certain value creation, value output. Um, I, I think that oftentimes things that are more prestigious are by just by definition going to um, create more competition and are by definition going to drive down returns. And so, you know, it's always important that it, you know, if all things being equal, you want the, the thing that you're uh, buying into to be less uh, well-known and less, um, perceivably attractive, um, at least to a new entrant into that uh, space. It's, it's really interesting because, 
you know, to be honest, everything you're saying makes complete sense, right? But it's actually really tough to act that way, even if you conceptually understand it. Like, I, I often find myself rereading articles on things like dollar cost averaging, compound growth, passive investing, not because I need to relearn the concepts, but almost because it's a psychological reminder to stay the course and not mask opportunism with foolishness. And and I think part of it is the way you, know, you were kind of alluding to it is uh, part of it is the way we're geared towards admiration, right? It's much more interesting to read about the seemingly attainable, you know, some new VR tech or, or the way kind of Silicon Valley or, or the coast kind of view the world versus, you know, a person from, you know, a very ordinary background in the middle of the country creating something that's probably integral to your daily life, right? Like something, let's say like plumbing, but not super exciting and is making a crazy amount of money, right? How, does that resonate? Is that, you know, does that, is that how you think about it? Yeah, I mean, I, I, look, I think it is hard. And I think we do have to be constantly reminded of what we're what we're trying to, to achieve. I mean, um, I think if anything, that's probably the, the thing that leads us most astray is we just forget what, what we we're trying to go after what we were trying to achieve in the first place. And so yeah, I mean, I, I need this as well. I mean, there's there's temptations at every life stage. And um, I think the more that you can just focus on fundamentals and everyone's got to decide. I mean, are you trying to optimize your life to spend time with your family, to spend time on serving others, to spend time on making the most money, um, to be the most famous, to have the most power and influence? I mean, I think these are the, you know, the deep waters that uh, too often we tread lightly over or look into the deep water and say, eh, I'm going to go ahead and push that down and, and not, uh, not, not spend too much time there because I think these are really challenges us to uh, optimize our lives very differently than maybe we're spending now. And I think mean, certainly I feel that way all the time. I get distracted and, and off on tangents and I, I come to, you know, sort of my senses later down the road. And I'm like, wait, wait a minute, what, what was I just doing? Why did I just waste a month of my life pursuing this thing when I didn't even really want that outcome? Uh, well, I got sucked up in some prestige game, right, is usually what happens. And, uh, um, you know, I think just remembering what you're trying to achieve and, and really uh, trying to look into your, you know, look into your own heart and, and figure out what, uh, uh, how do you define the good life? I think it's an important thing that, that oftentimes we, we gloss over. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting. I, I wrote a post on Medium at the turn of the year this year on kind of uh, resolutions for 2019 and, and resolutions is obviously New Year's resolutions is obviously a very cliche thing to write about. But for me, it was a little bit of introspection of, you know, saying, you know, for the first time kind of in, in my life, I, I really tried to introspect and focus on, you know, what is a happy life kind of look like? And it's not getting sucked up in, you know, the prestige game or, or the next kind of thing. And so for me, you know, a lot of the resolutions actually, actually all the resolutions I crafted this year we're actually around completely non-professional things, right? Mm. I think it's that point, which is, as you get a little bit older, I think I think as folks get older, this is a, this is kind of table stakes. But for me, I, I kind of went through this process over the last two years, especially getting married. Is I think as you get older, you start getting a, a lot less impressed by some of the things that you used to be impressed by, right? Uh, that are all uh, in many ways byproducts of that prestige game, and you start getting impressed a lot more by uh, by some of the smaller details of of the happiness of life. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I would say for, for sure. Um, I actually wrote a, I wrote a post to myself called the little things impress me most, um, which, which, you know, I went through that whole exercise, you know, sort of what was in my head. I tried to put it down in writing and, and, you know, I would say I was probably a couple of years ago, even now, I mean, what impresses me most right now is uh, a guy at my church whose wife got, got diagnosed with a really aggressive form of cancer who's put his whole life on hold to take care of their kids and has steadfast uh, been by her side and rearranged his entire life and happy to do so, right? Like yep. his, his care and love for his family and, you know, dedication. I mean, that's what really impresses me. Uh, it's easy to talk about integrity. It's easy to talk about uh, being a good friend or, or a good family member when things are uh, going up and to the right. Um, you know, when it's costly is when it really matters. And I think that's when, uh, when I'm able to watch people have high cost to, um, to follow their sort of true North. That's just, it's just a beautiful thing, right? And that, that's what really impresses me these days. So let's, let's turn back to adventures and, uh, talk a little bit more about, about the, uh, about the business, right? So you, you found this niche kind of boring businesses, um, how do you think about kind of managing your competitive advantage and continuing to take enough risk as you grow? 
entrants will always come in and they'll have less to lose, kind of like you did when you started, right? And so I, I wonder how you think about, you know, the balance of developing a moat on one side, risk tolerance on the other, kind of quote unquote innovation, right? Which more so less than like tech underlying technological innovation, I mean more so in business model innovation and, and kind of change and evolution. And then ultimately the, the actual product, you know, that, that you sell. That's a great question. That's a huge question. Um, you know, I would say to, to kind of separate it off, I, I'm not worried about us taking risk. Um, well, at least calculated risk. I, I don't feel like we're, we've ever been a particularly risk tolerant firm. Uh, I always think about risk in terms of the probabilistic bet, right? The risk and the reward. And so we've always tried to do things that we believe have less downside than upside and, and you know, hopefully far, far less downside than upside. Um, in terms of, you know, moving forward and, and continuing to evolve, I mean, we, if anything, feel this constant need to get better and to explore. And I don't see that going away, gosh, anytime soon. I mean, if anything, I, I think that we're in this beautiful period now where we've got a whole bunch of curious people. I mean, there's 13 of us at the adventures level now. Um, and everyone just wants to win the right way, right? We talk about winning all the time. And, uh, and, and that, you know, manifests itself in, we've got this incredible resource coming out later this week um, called the middle ground, where we've mapped uh, all of the starting positions for both sellers and buyers in a purchase agreement and talked about where do you find the middle ground? And our argument is, gosh, why wouldn't we just start in the middle ground and then make arguments for moving out of the middle as opposed to everyone starting on the edges and then trying to you know, brutally uh, inch by inch drag each other into the middle, uh, which creates conflict, increased costs. I mean, it's a, it's a tough process. You know, if we start in the middle ground, um, I, I think it would it, it would cause a lot more transactions to go through and um, ultimately preserve a lot more relational uh, value through that process. And so that's something that we came up with um, just as a, a project, because we've seen a lot of challenges with how the sort of standard uh, uh, industry status quo is. And so, you know, just as one example, I mean, we've got these projects going on all the time. We've got another mapping project that... Um, we realized we didn't have a very good map of the, of the lower middle market, the area that we operate in. And so we've gone through this process of mapping. Uh, we started with intermediaries, just how many intermediaries are out there, uh, professional people that are representing sellers out there. And, and this is going to you know, blew my mind. It may not blow your mind, but blew my mind is we, we found there are 950 intermediaries wow. just in Florida that we could find just in Florida. Um, and so, you know, the universe uh, of business, especially in the sort of the, as you uh, move down the pyramid, it, the base gets much, much larger than you ever could dream it is. And so uh, that high fragmentation, um, being a consolidator sort of in that and, and exploring it. I mean, I feel like from a moat standpoint, competitive advantage standpoint, like Adventures is in a fine position. I mean, we, the, the book that we wrote, uh, the, the, uh, the Messy Marketplace, we put our entire due diligence checklist in the back of the book because it doesn't matter if you have the checklist. Like what matters is judgment and you only get judgment one way, which is by hitting your face on the pavement. Right. And we've done plenty of that over the years and learned. And so we, you know, really have taken the standpoint of just trying to open source everything that we can in, in hopes that it attracts the right people and repels the wrong people. Um, and we're not really worried about entrance. I mean, sure, there are plenty of new entrants in the market all the time. There's also plenty of uh, people exiting the market all the time. Um, I would say that. You know, we get contacted at least two or three times a month by somebody who says, hey, I'm I'm doing exactly what you're doing. And um, I would say less than five percent of them are still doing it uh, two years later uh, from what we can tell. So because um, it's just brutally hard. I mean, it's, it's incredibly hard to buy one business. Buying one business is outrageously difficult. Um just getting across the finish line, which is really the starting line, right? Where you own the business is, is difficult. Now operating that business and successfully quote unquote exiting, whether that's through, you know, internally generated free cash flow or from a sale um, is way more difficult than getting the deal done. And then, oh, by the way, if you want to try to buy more than one business, now you got to step up out of that one business and create a portfolio of call it two to three businesses. I mean, that is a magnitude order harder than buying one business. And as we're finding out now, building a portfolio, we have, you know, six companies right now in our portfolio. Um, we've got, you know, a couple deals kind of currently in the hopper. 
but we're trying to build out, you know, 10, 20, 30 businesses, that is an order of magnitude harder than the previous level. Um, you know, I, I, we're just learning all this for the first time, right? Because we're going through it. And I think that um, from a uh, competitive standpoint, we welcome new entrants into the market. Uh, we certainly don't want to hoard resources, hoard information, and um, think that there's certainly, um, and we, we could talk about this a little bit if you want, but this, you know, tsunami of sellers that are all baby boomers that, that need to be serviced somehow, or there's going to be a tremendous amount of value destruction that goes on over the next 10 to 15 years in this country. There were two kind of key things that stuck out from the way you responded to that question to me, which is one is this idea of um, it's actually significantly more advantageous to educate the market, right? I think there's, you can kind of have two philosophies when you run a firm like this, which is, do you keep kind of all the checklists, et cetera, that's your quote unquote IP and you keep that kind of in-house or does it, create more value if you know more folks in the market are actually educated setting levels of realistic expectations and kind of operating as more sophisticated players uh you know to help get deals done or to kind of help facilitate the process i think there's a second piece too which which i really like which is kind of this idea of focusing on self right so you know whether folks come in come out it's it's again kind of sticking to your true north star and and involving the business from a you know, inside out perspective, as opposed to focusing on what's going on on the outside and affecting that on the inside. And, and I think that leads the kind of focusing of self piece leads to a pretty interesting point around um, how you guys think about evaluating businesses, especially ones that, you know, get faced with technology headwinds. But before we get into that point, talk a little bit more about this kind of baby boomer phenomenon, because I think it's actually I think it's a really interesting point. Well, so this has been predicted for, for a long time. If you look at who owns um, profitable businesses in the United States, uh, the vast majority are owned by baby boomers. And um, so probably starting 15 years ago, at least 10 for sure, um, people were starting to talk about this, you know, blue wave that was, you know, the, the other blue wave, the blue hair wave, probably, right? Um, that was going to hit. Um and it just hasn't materialized. I mean, there's certainly a constant, you know, grouping of, of sellers that are, you know, becoming to market. But for the most part, there hasn't been a, this dramatic uptick in people selling their businesses. And, and you got to ask why. Well, um, people are living longer and quality of life is higher, actually, despite headlines, uh, especially amongst people that are uh, financially well off. So if you look at the health outcomes and, um uh, quality of life sort of metrics. If you're making, you know, more than $3 million a year, which is really our target audience these days, uh, you're probably getting access to some pretty awesome healthcare. Um, and you can get kind of whatever you need. And you're probably watching your diet, you're, 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 you know, thoughtful, you've got some margin in your life, your stress, you know, maybe lower, may not, depending on, you know, depending on your situation, but uh, all things being equal, um, it, it allows people to work in their businesses a lot longer. And so this, this wave has really um, been pushed uh, to, you know, if you're you know, think about it in math terms, the curve has been pushed to the right. And I think the outcome of that is we will see a tsunami of these businesses coming to market. I mean, there's only three outcomes that a business um, you know, all business have to be transitioned. There's only three outcomes. You can either gift it, uh, sell it or shut it down. Um, and if you're not going to gift it, which, you know, most people, even if they've done really well, can't afford or don't want to just outright gift their business usually to a family member. So there needs to be some sort of financial transaction involved. Um, certainly you don't want to shut it down and just destroy all that value. Um, unfortunately, that's what we see happening probably more often than not. Uh, and then third, sell it, uh, which is, you know, a massive transaction and, um, you know, 10,000 ways to screw it up, right? And that's obviously part of why we wrote the book was to, to educate people on that process. But I would say, you know, those, the, those three outcomes are it. And, and, you know, you've got a whole bunch of people that need to sell their business and it's going to come, come due. And so when you look at, are there going to be, um, you know, if you want to think about sellers uh, versus buyers, you know, where the buyers come from? Well, the buyers are, are take a long time and, and it's pretty specialized skill set. And you got to have access to a lot of resources, especially as you start moving, you know, from a two, three, four million dollar earning business. I mean, you're talking about 20, 30, 40 million dollar transactions. Um, you know, you, you, you just can't do that for the first time with not a lot of resources. 
So the buyer pool is, is necessarily limited and it takes a long time for entrants to come in and get trained up and build infrastructure. And so you'll see this mismatch over the next 10 to 15 years where there's just going to be far more sellers than buyers. It will cause prices to, to, to go down sort of independent of economic cycles. And certainly we think we'll end up being the beneficiaries of that. Um, and, but, you know, we're really looking for more of the right uh, seller at the right time for us, rather than just trying to pay less. Uh, I think this is kind of a common misconception um, in our area of the market is, you know, it's not like you feast on paying less. What, what you know, if, if an outcome really is successful, it's because it was successfully transitioned, it's stable, typically good relationships accompany it, and it continues to grow into the future. Um, there's almost no price you can pay if the business is going to die, especially die shortly thereafter. So, um, it's less about price and it's more about um, finding the right quality and right attributes that, that fit well with adventures. And so let's let's talk about the kind of volume entry a little bit more. Right. And, and I'm curious in kind of the how that relates to how you evaluate these businesses and, and, and how it relates to just kind of overall trend. So to root it in some context, you had a, you had a pretty interesting kind of Twitter thread uh, this past weekend, and it, it got me thinking about this nuance uh, a little bit more. The thread was on you know, Peloton, Mirror, uh, some of these new kind of fitness products and, and debating whether or not they're short-term trends or fads. And I'm curious, you know, when you're evaluating businesses, how do you think about whether these businesses and the headwinds they face are trends and fads that are, you know, kind of par for the course, or they're actually transformations in how we beha- behave and will fundamentally change the access of long-term opportunity and value creation? Yeah, great question. And boy, if I, if I had a if I had a great question or a great answer to that question, um, you know that that would be that would be the game changer. Uh, I don't think we. I don't think I know. I mean, I think that's. I mean, you try to use discernment and judgment, but I gosh, I it's really hard. Is Peloton a fad? I mean, you know, everything would point you know in history, and there's been lots of uh, fitness devices. Um, you know, in history, but uh, honestly, that's just not my bailiwick. Like, like Peloton's a venture-backed, high-growth company. Um, there's a reason why we don't tread in those waters. Uh, you know, there are far, people far smarter than than me or us that that you know sort of deal in that area. Um, well, what I would say is, we look at the opposite of the spectrum: things that haven't changed in a really long time, and just are um, sort of by the nature of what you see necessarily stable. I mean, when I think of um, you know, stable businesses. I mean, one example of this is, you know, we partner in the nation's largest swimming pool builder and out in Arizona. And this is a business that, um, we've really just love. I mean, it's uh, highly cyclical, uh, it's certainly going to have its ups and downs, but over time, um, people have demonstrated that they like to dip their bodies in water for pleasure. And, um, the pool ends up being, uh, especially for, uh, families ends up being a centerpiece of, uh, of activity. Um, when you layer on that sunbelt and net population migration, uh, along with warming trends, um, you know, we think there are a lot of tailwinds uh, in that business. It's also a, it's a hard business. Um, there's a lot of moving parts and pieces. The team that's out there in Arizona is just phenomenal. And uh, we were you know, blessed to partner with uh, four guys in that business who are uh, just phenomenal uh, in how they understand the business and um, do really well for their customers. So, um, you know, we always try to find all these, you know, different seemingly independent factors that go into a decision about whether or not to partner with the business. We uh, we're trying to look at them all and it's all telling us a story, right? Each independent piece isn't necessarily the determining factor. We're trying to take them all together and then uh, tell us what that means. I want to jump a little bit to your your kind of philosophical view on, on the world. And, and I know we don't have, you know, hours and hours. We could have hours and hours of conversations on this, but uh, we'll, we'll shorten it down a little bit. You, you pinned a tweet storm of, you know, the 10 ideas that you've really internalized and learned over the years. Um, and I want to dive into a, into a few of them specifically. Um, one of them is around inversion. You said, Avoiding failure is a heck of a lot easier than trying to be successful. Understand predictable points of failure and plan against them. And don't worry, failure will still come often. And I want to unpack that. I I actually read a really interesting article about a month ago or so, which was on how in amateur tennis, you know, 80% of the points are one that are one are avoidance of error. Whereas in professional tennis, 80% is actually because of some active intentional move. And it feels like in some sense, that's a little bit of the nuance you're getting at in the quote, you know, what's, what's been your thought process? What's been the, 
kind of realistic lessons that have informed, you know, that philosophy over the years for you? I think that's a great analogy. I, I would say, you know, almost always uh, we like to think that we're playing pro tennis and, and almost always we're playing amateur tennis. <laughs> and I would say that's just dead on uh, in business and in life. Right. I mean, let's just, let's, let's zoom out beyond business and just say, you know, okay, you're, you're on your deathbed and uh, you're looking back on your life. What are the things that you're going to be proud of? What are the things you're going to wish you had done and not done? And I think if you live in light of your death, I think that you will make more often than not better decisions um, and will focus on the right things. And I think in, in business, it's very similar. I mean, we call it business hygiene being the dominant problem that we see in a lot of smaller businesses. So let's, let's start from sort of first principles. You know, small businesses don't stay small on purpose. So there's a reason why they're small. Uh, oftentimes they lack sort of what we call basic hygiene around certain key pillars of the business. So it's really hard to make good decisions if you don't know uh, how your revenue interacts with your gross profit, margins, uh, suppliers, and how it all you know, filters down into your uh, cost structure of your organization. And oftentimes, it's as funny as it sounds, we will come into businesses where they tell us that they made $5 million last year. We run the numbers and say, guys, you made two. And they're like, whoa, whoa, wait a minute, two million. How, where, where did the other three million go? And we say, well, it went here and here and here and here. How, do, how are you running the business if you don't know that? Well, gosh, we would have never bought this piece of equipment had we known that. We would never have done this if we had known that. Getting these feedback loops in place, you know, whether it's accounting systems, um, you know, which don't just have a scorekeeping function, but also have a predictive function for leadership teams, incredibly important. Yet, 98%, maybe 99% of small businesses have barely functioning accounting systems, like barely functioning. Um, it's very rare to find uh, uh, highly detailed and spec'd out systems. And by the way, for very good reason, oftentimes it's very difficult to build and expensive. And so, you know, life's about opportunity costs. Again, you know, if you're, if you're spending $2 million a year to have slightly better information edge uh, in a business that's, you know, fairly small, it's probably a value destructive activity. And so this is where, you know, over time, if you look at inversion and how to do better as a small business, it's going into every area, whether it's marketing, whether it's sales, um, you know, operations, uh, how you optimize each one of those areas seems far more complicated than it really is. A lot of times it's just going in and saying, what are just the you know, table stakes, best practices that you can put into place. And over time, you know, you make 1%, in, you know, incremental increase over here, 4% over here. Over time, it compounds and adds it into a, a, a tremendous amount of difference in the business, especially as you extrapolate it over a long period of time. Yeah, let's, let's actually jump to the compounding one. I was, I was going to ask that one after, after another one, but um, it, you, you have a tweet up on nonlinearity. And I had Leo Polovitz from from Sousa Ventures on the show a few weeks ago, we spent the majority of the episode kind of riffing on compounding and how, you know, humans are basically wired not to be able to process nonlinear growth. But your lesson here was, and, and I quote, I expect orderly sequential outcomes. I get compounding with unexpectedly positive and negative outcomes. Expect the unexpected, get better at ballparking nonlinear results. You know, a ton to unpack there. And, and I have to imagine you've seen the compounded upside and downside over the years and the businesses you've evaluated and worked with? Yeah, I mean, I, I would just say in general, the principle is uh, things can go far better than you ever dreamed and things can get worse far quicker than you ever expected. Um, and I think, you know, the, the upside uh, never happens when you want it to. It's almost like when you least expect it, things just go through the roof. Um, the downside, I feel like, is far more predictable. I mean, if you're going to fail, there's some predictable ways. I mean, we call them the controlling factors in a deal. There's some pretty predictable ways, usually, that you can fail. I mean, things will come out of nowhere. You'll get hit with a lawsuit. You'll have employee issues. Like, it's people. People are messy, right? Um, but I feel like as long as you get kind of on the same page about what those controlling factors are and really risk mitigate against those, you can have more control over downside protection and risk mitigation than you can over the upside. Yeah, the people lesson is, is interesting, too, because you, you know, one of your one of your lessons was also, uh, again, and I, and I quote, every person is inherently valuable, independent of behavior and beliefs. Everyone matters. Treat people accordingly without exception. 
And it's not exactly to the point you were just saying, but it's a little bit related. I, it's an idea that, you know, frankly, it's super simple, right? It, it sounds super simple and conceptually should be. Um, but I think in some sense is layered with a little bit of nuance and complexity. And, and one of the add-ons to this lesson I, I really like is kind of this idea that, and I've, I've definitely started living my life this way, is, is this idea that everybody knows a nugget of information that you don't, right? Which can widen your thinking. And committing the kind of empathy at your core versus judgment in how you perceive can actually you know, significantly propel you. Yeah, I mean, so, so yes, I, I think everyone's got, um, everyone's got something you can learn from. You know, everyone's also fighting battles you know nothing about. Yep. Um, and everyone is trying to do the best they can. Um, I think if you, know, if, you, if you kind of approach people with that, it gives you a, sort of a default state of empathy. And I mean, I think to maybe to zoom out a little bit, that you have to fundamentally decide, are, are people a means to whatever end you want or are people the ends of themselves? Um, and I think this is, this maybe sounds again, straightforward, but it really is not. Um, so, you know, in business, are people um, the means to you making a profit uh, or screwing things up or um, getting in your way, you know, cause people will never serve you the way you want to be served ever. Like your, your significant other's never going to serve you. Your family's never going to serve you. Um, we're, you know, we're, uh, we're, we're difficult, tricky creatures, right? And so you have to look at it and you have to say, I mean, there's really two ways to look at the world. I mean, either the person that's in front of you is uh, an inha- inherently valuable creature. That is the purpose of life is to work with them and treat them well and to help them and serve them. Or they are a moist robot that's job is to serve you. And when they don't serve you exactly the way you want to be served, you let them know that and you try to either incentivize them to serve you better or punish them for not serving you the way you want to be served. Um, And when you really break it down like that, it creates a pretty stark difference in reality and it took me a long time to sort of come to this conclusion, but, but, you know, now I look at people as being the ends and of themselves and, you know, do I do it perfectly? Of course not. Um, I'm, I'm a hypocrite, right? Everyone is. Um, but I, I think, you know, I think, I think often about that and uh, try to recenter on um, a service to people as opposed to being served by people. Yeah, I want to I want to round out the conversation, Brent, with uh, with your book, you know, and, and congratulations on it, right? For for our listeners, you know, a I, I highly suggest getting it and reading it. I I poured through it kind of in a in a weekend. It was a great read, um, and you know, by kind of threads on Twitter, it looks like a, a lot of folks got it. You guys had some back order issues as well, so that's always great to hear. It's a it's a problem of success in many ways, but you know, give us a lens into, you know. Talk, uh, why why you wrote the book, right? What your favorite lesson from the book was? You know, you guys went through over ten thousand conversations and and synthesized a lot of those learnings and understandings into a, a really crisp kind of hundred ish page read. Talk a little bit more about kind of the genesis of the project. Yeah, well, so the the genesis is um, that we tried to find something that we could send to sellers that would help jumpstart the conversation. So we always think about whether it's you know doing a podcast or writing an article about scaling conversation. Um, you know, we're inherently relational beings and uh, the only way you start a relationship is by interacting. And so we want to put stuff out there that, you know, jumpstarts or accelerates that interaction. And we looked out in the marketplace and said, okay, surely somebody has got to have written a book out there on how to sell and buy businesses and all that. And we really just found a fairly barren landscape. It was a lot of um, very weighty business cards where the underlying message was, don't do this, uh, or you should be very careful and you should hire me or my firm. And, um, you know, we uh, oftentimes try to talk sellers out of selling. And we were trying to say, okay, we don't want to send somebody a business card. What we want to do is we want to send somebody uh, a valuable piece of, of content that will help educate them and really be the first five to seven hours of conversations that we'd like to have with them. And when we couldn't find it, we built it. Uh, so that was how the book got started. Um, man, so many people have, have influenced it. Uh, it's unbelievable. Uh, got a lot of feedback, but we tried to condense it all down. Like you said, into a very tight package. We, you know, <laughs> in a world that, uh, is, uh, you know, filled with books that take one good idea and then flog it for, you know, 
350 pages. Uh, <laughs> we wanted to do the opposite of it. So one of our uh, investors uh, said it's the highest stake to sizzle ratio of any book they've ever read, uh, which I think is a compliment. I- I'm not sure. Maybe it's not. But um, uh, anyway, so it's the first five to seven hours of conversations. It is, a, uh, we hope, a 3D view of all the stakeholders, their interests. Um, you know, the goal of it is to build empathy, uh, you know, sort of for everyone else in the process and um, ultimately to help the ecosystem drive down costs and get more stuff done that's value accretive. Yeah, I, re- I really like the kind of thought process behind that. As we, as we round out the conversation, Brent, you know, as a, as a final question, I'd love to just kind of dive into, you know, what's next for adventures, right? You guys are doing a bunch of cool things. You released the book, um, you started something called Orbit, you know, maybe you can talk about that a little bit more. But in the in the spirit of long term thinking, you know, what's what's the next decade all about for you and the team? Well, I have no idea. Um, and we, you know, sort of we're constantly planning, but never have a plan. So we um, we we're looking at what we have in front of us and, and we really enjoy it. We want to do more of what we've been doing. Um, so I, I would say that. Um, it's continuing to uh, partner with uh, smaller companies, uh, help them try to be more successful. Uh, the orbit is certainly one path for that. We have um, created a, an ecosystem of talent. Uh, so we, we want people to opt in that are at every age and stage, um, you know, uh, whether they're people coming right out of school or still in school, all the way to uh, people towards the tail end of their careers in every discipline that um, want to uh, be shown opportunities. And so we've gotten, I think there's over 500 people now have signed up. Uh, in a couple months uh, for it. And we're hosting events around the country to really just try to co-learn with these people. uh, What does it take to operate a small business? um, And how can we get them to potentially plugged into the right spot at the right time? So we'll be continuing to roll stuff out. We've got a few other um, projects that we're really uh, working on right now that aren't ready for public consumption, but we're always got, you know, stuff in the, in the cooker and uh, that, that, um, you know, we'll release down the road, but um, yeah, I don't, I don't know. We'll, uh, it would shock me if we're doing the exact same thing in five years that we're doing today, but maybe we're, we're open for it. Well, awesome. Well, Brent, this was, this was a bunch of fun and a, and a really interesting conversation as, as I kind of mentioned to you beforehand, you know, I, I admire a lot of the way that you think about business and investing. I think a lot of it comes from first principles and it's really originalistic, but you know, one of the things I, I admire about you the most, it comes, it comes through very much so in your writing. And, and I think it came through even in conversation is, is just your humility and openness. So, you know, really enjoyed it. And, you know, thanks so much for taking the time. Thank you, sir. I really appreciate you having me on. Thank you.